Hey, I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. We're going to talk about revisionist audio in movies today, and we'll explain what that means in a second. Hold your dang horses. Welcome to Film Formally. So, yeah, today's a bit of a bet noir day where we're just going to complain about something that bothers us. And this one's really important to me because it's something that people just are not aware of the way they're aware of other similar problems in other areas. So just starting off, what is revisionist audio? What do we mean by that? It's a direct analog to other revisions of movies, other things that make movies not the way they used to be. So like we're used to alternate cuts. We're used to the idea of people changing the color of movies. We're used to the idea of people adding special effects to movies. We're used to the idea of lots of different things. Revisionist audio is at least as common as all those things. It might even be more common overall in, as far as the frequency with which it so, occurs. Whoa, 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 whoa Einstein. <laughs> Poindexter. Right. Let's, let's roll way back here. Yeah. What is revisionism? What even is a revision? It's yeah. just taking, I mean, when we're talking about movies, revisionism means taking the way something originally was and significantly altering it. It's just not the way it was originally presented and you're changing it further away from that thing. So, so Will, tell me about some high profile examples of revisionism. Outside sure. of audio. Yeah, yeah like, like the most ones. the most famous or infamous one is like Star Wars, right? Where George Lucas goes in, changes the cuts to it. So like Han shoots after Greedo, adds new CGI special effects that were never possible in 1977. And most people agree, clash horrendously with the rest of the film's aesthetic. Darth Vader saying the word no? Yeah, Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi, looping in the exact same no that they used in Revenge of the Sith. And that's actually an example right there of revisionist audio, where you're altering the audio track in a way that's taking it further away from the original. There's also Blade Runner, right, is a, such a great example of so many things being revised. The cut is revised where, you know, plot points are emphasized or the scenes are sort of rejiggered. Uh, there's new special effects. The color in Blade Runner's final cut is different <laughs> than it used to be. Plus the sound is like remixed. I'm, we're going to come back to Blade Runner's kind of this like example of everything <laughs> almost. But it has to be one of the most revised movies. <laughs> one of the most like openly revised movies that stayed the same movie the whole time. You know what I mean? Where it's not like a remix of the original material into like a new artistic statement. It's all Blade Runner. But well, well, yeah. Who's doing these revisions? Who's revising these movies? Who's killing us? In the case of Blade Runner, the revisions, it depends on who's doing which cut, right? So original cut of Blade Runner, you know, Ridley Scott worked on that a bunch. And then the studio kind of took it out of his hands. And then there's like international cuts. And it just, it gets in so many people's hands. It, it can be anyone. Because you got like the director's them. cut in big quotes, not actually cut by the director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just like based on his notes, I think. Yeah. And then the final cut where that was spearheaded by Ridley Scott himself. So they were able to, you know, get the film to originally not only where he wanted it originally but 
<laughs> where he wanted it in ways that could only be accomplished by very 21st century technology. Yeah. And then there's like fan cuts and there's, yeah. Yeah. And then there's fan cuts that try and revise the movie back to the way it was originally when that is not available. I mean, we did that little of that, didn't we, Will? <laughs> yeah, we've done that a tiny bit. There's also fan cuts that revise a movie into just totally new bonkers situations. What I want to do today, and Devin's going to jump in with me as someone who's slightly less familiar with these things than me. How dare you? Just talk about a few of the ways that audio gets revised really often. Sometimes it's good ways. Sometimes it's bad ways. We're going to be emphasizing a little bit the bad ways and, and, and then coming around to like the good ways a little bit later. But we just want to give you the tools to be aware of these things. The same way you're aware of an alternate cut or something with new special effects or whatever. We want you to be able to be similarly critical and aware when it comes to sound, which, as is often stated, is equally important to the visuals, but is often way less scrutinized for reasons I can partly understand. So one caveat to this, we're going to be offering a few audio examples in this episode. Um, Some stuff that's going to like compare... um, some stuff that's going to compare a Blu-ray source to an earlier source. We're going to have a couple of those. And even though this podcast is a lower quality audio file, trust me when I say that that the problems are fundamental to what you're going to be hearing. The problems are there. And you should still be... You should, you should trust what you're hearing because the, the problems are that bad. Let's start with soundtracks that have been noise reduced to oblivion. I like that one. Yeah, it's my favorite subgenre of uh, bad revisionist audio noise yeah, reduction. Totally. So I think we're all familiar with the idea of starting up an old movie, whether you're sitting in a theater or you're throwing on a DVD at home, and the movie starts, and the first thing you hear is this sort of crackling. On a certain level, it's an ear sore, right? Because the sound's not perfectly clean. It's not something that's diegetic or intentional from the filmmakers. It's just a product of both the original materials and the age of the materials. So often the instinct is to get rid of that stuff. So the same way with there's a popular there's a well-known thing in home video of film grain being reduced where they'll sort of try to reduce the the graininess of the image by they'll they'll almost literally like just smear the image digitally. And I think film green is a good analog for this, actually. Yeah, totally. um, The detail that's inherent in film is made up of green. So basically, when you try and take away all that green, you're taking away actual detail in your movie as a byproduct. And the same thing, surprise, surprise, applies to audio. You know, audio is made up of a waveform. The waveform is essentially, it's individual vibrations that happen to cohere into sounds we recognize. But that is built out of a ton of incoherent sound. (laughs) Essentially, so when you take away that hiss, that tape hiss, you're actually wiping away a layer of audio detail. Is that about right? Yeah, that's that's a that's that's exactly right. So when you when you say anything in your day-to-day life, your voice, every sound you're hearing is made up of a certain array of different vibrations and frequencies. So there's high frequencies and there's low frequencies, and it's literally like high-pitched sounds, low-pitched sounds. And most sounds have a mixture of those frequencies. So if you're removing that background noise from the film, 
it's if you're aggressive in removing it, it's simply not possible to remove that background noise and not affect the same frequencies that are in the dialogue, in the other sound effects, in the music. So the result is that you're removing it. So you're actually removing the quality of the audio when you're doing that. And you're, you're, so your intent might be to restore it. The other problem with that is that often that noise is a part of the original film. It's actually what the film sounded like when it was released. Um, sometimes yeah, the audio gets sources of noises, right? Where it's like, it can be degradation, right? Like it can be like water, everything from water damage to like whatever. But, um, oftentimes that's just how it sounded on the day they record it. Yeah. Or exactly. that's even just how that film print was made. Yeah. So that's what people heard when they sat down to the movie on its premiere night, you know? So there's a lot of attempts to try to clean this stuff up. And so I want to play you, you an example from the third man first of all i'm going to play a clip from the the 1999 criterion collection dvd which has you know it's got a lower quality type of audio file so you might think that therefore it's going to be lower quality but you'll hear in a moment why it's clearly not so here's the dvd do you know this man i've never seen him joseph harbin no he works in a military hospital no. And now here's the 2015 Blu-rays audio. Do you know this man? I've never seen him. Joseph Harbin. No. He works in a military hospital. No. Which has been cleaned up. So DVD. Do you know this man? Blu-ray. Do you know this man? And you can probably pretty clearly hear that the Blu-ray is just way more muffled. It's like underwater. <laughs> would, you be, um, would you be upset if one of those dots stopped moving? <laughs> Sorry, that's my worst most impression. If Orson Welles was Harry Lyme in his, like, 60s. <laughs> or, sorry, his, his mid-30s. We, we still know penicillin before it's time. Uh, Every July, penicillin grows there. <laughs> <laughs> there is a California penicillin. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> anyway. I don't know who you're doing, but it's not doing Orson, Orson Welles. in uh, circa his uh, drunk commercial. I know you're trying to do. <laughs> Anyways, um, so, Will, um, mm -hmm. one thing I want to clear up here, because you, you mentioned it briefly, but I think it's worth going into, because we're coming with a certain knowledge of these things. Um, you mentioned that the DVD's audio encoding sounds better despite having a lower quality digital file, right? So they're both, the DVD and Blu-ray both have digital files associated with them. That's how the audio is encoded. What is the difference between the Blu-ray's digital file and the DVD's digital file, and why is the DVD's digital file still better, despite the fact that it's on a lower-end digital format? This, yeah, this is a great question, and I'm not going to get too technical in how I explain it. Aww. The easiest way to <laughs> the easiest way to sort of get into it is when you think about MP3s, right? The MP3 file format is actually a compromise format where MP3s were developed to be able to play music and other sounds at a reasonable quality level while still keeping the size of the file itself very low. So whenever you listen to an MP3, you're listening to something that has been compromised because it's, it's what's called a lossy format and then there are lossless sound formats where the idea is that they're just as big as they need to be based on the sound that's in them. They don't compromise on quality, and so as a result, you wind up with a much bigger file size. 
And the same thing is generally true of these two audio formats. You can technically have lossless audio, I believe, on DVD. DVDs aren't designed to support lossless 5.1. They can have lossless stereo, though. Yeah. So you can have lossless files on DVD, but they're often not used, partly because they just take up so much space. They're much more common on Blu-ray. But just because something can hold more audio information doesn't mean it's automatically going to sound better. The principle is called garbage in, garbage out, where <laughs> you, if you have... It's a very scientific name you have there. Yeah, if it's, it's, it's actually a common term in audio. But if let's say you've got a extremely bad painting that was knocked together by your cynical cousin who didn't try at all. Oh, Will, I have a, I have a very accessible... Uh, accessible uh, analogy here. More than painting? Yes. Okay. Get this. So imagine you have a uh, bootleg of the of the August 20th, 1981 Bruce Springsteen concert that he held for Vietnam veterans, sourced uh, from an audio tape, right? Yeah. Then you have another one, uh, November 5th, 1980, recorded on 24-track, you know, uh, professionally mixed by Bob Clearmountain with a great deal of care. That 24-track, you know, mixed down to a stereo. Like a, a low quality MP3 of that will probably sound much better than a lossless wave file that is a hundred times as big of the 1981 audience tape because that is a higher quality mix, higher quality source. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, that's correct. And it's the same as <laughs> the, <laughs> the analogy I was analogy ever. <laughs> the analogy I was going to use is if you have a really shitty painting and you put it in a beautiful frame, then it's always going to be worse than like the best Rembrandt being hung in like a dollar store frame, right? Because the frame may not be good. It may not be doing full justice to the painting, but the relative qualities of the paintings are just so vast. Yeah, and obviously there's limits to this. Like if you're going to yeah. pump it through like a two kilobyte per second MP3, it's just going to sound like nothing. But, you know, assuming you're within the relative standard deviation of audio compression um garbage in garbage out totally applies yeah exactly so denoising and it's denoising is one of the things that gets missed the most often because i think it, it takes some practice before you're good at noticing it and the other problem is people often just assume it's an old movie so yeah it makes sense that it doesn't sound too good that you know and sometimes it is the source that makes it sound bad but then other times you go back and like a Laserdisc from 1988 sounds like beautiful. And the 2018 mono lossless mix on the Blu-ray sounds like garbage. Well, so we came face to face with that with the good, the bad and the ugly. I mean, oh my pretty God. much in a linear way, every single version since that 90s Laserdisc sounds worse. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Right. So you have the Laserdisc. What year was the Laserdisc? I, in the 80s, I think, or 80s, early 90s. Okay. In the 80s, 90s laser disc. Yeah. Um, mono transfer from yeah. a print. Sounds beautiful. Where'd you find out, Shorty? Um, it's well Great balanced, mix. not too tinny, um, hasn't been noise reduced. It's beautiful. Didn't know how good that mix was until I heard the Laserdisc mix. Exactly. Yeah. And then you have the 1998 DVD transfer. It's basically the Laserdisc mix, but has been scrubbed of some detail, I believe. Yeah. 
on the high end and on the low end to try to just reduce the. Yeah. Where'd you find out, Shorty? And then you have the uh, Blu-ray version where they did some crazy EQ stuff to to kind of try and retrieve some of that high end. Where'd you find out, Shorty? What, so essentially what they did was they lopped off the high end, the high frequency treble, and then stretched the remaining treble. They actually re-encoded uh, probably the DVD version. Stretch the remaining treble to hit those peaks again, and the result is an incredibly thin, tinny sound. And it's so much worse than that laser disc from 20 years earlier. It boggles the mind. Yeah, yeah. And the the, the crappy thing is that laser disc audio is so hard to rip, and yet so often it's the best version of a movie's audio. Mm-hmm. This is so much more common than like you might assume. It's not just oh, occasionally the laser disc is better. It's like quite often a laser disc of a very old film is the best. Like Citizen Kane has pretty bad noise reduction, famously. There's just so many examples of this. And The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I mean, let's jump right back, right into, um, actually, before we do that, um, I just wanted to note that Alan Renee was someone who actually had very strong feelings about audio cleanup degrading the quality of the track. He was, he's, to my knowledge, pretty much unique among classic filmmakers who actually cared about this in the home video era so if you actually pop in i think it's out of print now sadly but at least criterion's edition of last year at marion bad we'll we'll put a screen cap of this in our show notes or something but their edition of last year in marion bad has a little note under the audio track selection where it mentions that alan renee really strongly believed that cleaning up the audio could have serious effects in reducing the the life of the track so there's two tracks included there's one that's virtually untouched and then there's one where criterion actually did very minimal cleanup and actually the that's a that one that track's not bad the cleaned up criterion track on that disc that's a good example of pretty tasteful noise reduction and crackle uh removal probably partly because they knew that they were working within the standards of someone who really cared about this a lot anyway don't know whether you'll want to cut all that or not. I find it interesting. Um, we, but we can jump. Good, the man, the ugly is such a good jumping off point to multiple things. Because now we're going to move on to something. Because they screwed up every possible element. We're going to move on to something we cannot really use uh, an audio example of here on this stereo mixed podcast. Uh, which is surround sound remixes. <laughs> so it's this one is may arguably less prevalent and less maybe less problematic than the denoising but it's scarcely more yeah it's more bizarre to me so it's pretty common for old movies including movies that were originally mixed in mono meaning there was only one channel that the audio was coming out of to get a remix for home video in 5.1 5.1 meaning like five speakers and the subwoofer or even 7.1 or even sometimes like Dolby Atmos which means there's like speakers on the ceiling it's like speakers above you I've heard great things actually about Blade Runner's Atmos remix because apparently like the rain in the movie is like really cool when it literally sounds like it's directly above you I mean that that raises all sorts of questions right and there's two weird things about this to me one is who is popping How Green Was My Valley, the 1941 John Ford movie, 
into their Blu-ray player and thinking, I'd really love to give my surround sound system a workout with this one. <laughs> um, and the other weird thing is that very often these mixes are either the default track or the mono track isn't even included, which there's no good reason for because it's never that the mono track's unavailable. It takes up like literally like less than 20% of the space of a 5.1 <laughs> track as far as just the file size of these things. I have an answer. Uh-huh. I know why. Marketing. But why wouldn't you include the mono track then? No, why I, does Louis Benoit's no Tristana uh, an only have 5.1 audio? <laughs> I, I have a different answer. Laziness. It, but what? It can't be that, like, yeah. when you're mastering a Blu-ray, like, adding an audio track. Like, Tristana has Italian 5.1, English 5.1. It's got a commentary track. And there's no mono. Why is it? Is it just like the the slight extra work as they're preparing the 5.1 mixes I to like master the mono it. for? Yep. <laughs> like that can't. Be, there's no. There's no way. Like I don't know. Like but like maybe that's it. Cause like these like on the other hand, Tristan is like visually so beautifully restored. So many of these movies have such just mwah, beautiful visual restorations. It's the I see it as the audio version of colorization you're changing into a fundamentally different viewing experience that mm. it was never mixed for, right? You know, the reason why black and white films don't work with colorization, even with perfect colorization, is that they weren't composed for that. Uh, the, like, these movies weren't designed to be heard with five channels. It's a fundamentally different experience. Yeah. I mean, my actual opinion on this is that there's just an assumption that the 5.1 mix, why would you need the mono if you have the 5.1? Why would you even, like, it's better. It's in... More, especially if it's like now. Here's here's where we get into it's four point one more. Right. Here's where we get into the idea of faithful versus unfaithful surround sound mixes. Right. So there's two kind of surround sound mixes for movies. One of them is you have faithful mixes, um, and the idea behind this is this is an arbitrary distinction that I make. But let's take Sidney Lumet's The Verdict. That movie was originally in mono, released in 1982. And it has a 5.1 remix on home video. But it's actually, I don't mind the 5.1 remix. It just keeps almost all the sound up front. So if you have a surround sound uh, system, almost everything, the dialogue, the sound effects is going to play out the front. And the only thing that will play in the surround sound speakers, like the, the speakers beside you or behind you, is going to be the music. Because they found the original music pieces so that they can put it in the surround channels mm -hmm. and and that's that that kind of reflects a, a philosophy of surround sound where typically the sound effects and what's happening on cameras up front and the music is allowed to exist in all the channels because it's non-diegetic right it's it's sort of existing in a in a more above the movie kind of space that's that's kind of the theory behind doing it that way so i i and i i respect that right i i get that i think the mono should always be included but i get doing a 5.1 remix that way. And then we've got The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, or Jaws. And I'm sure you can say oodles about The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly's mix is I think, the definition of a revisionist nightmare. <laughs> when you make a 5.1 mix out of a mono source, you have a few options depending on the resources available. If, for whatever reason, you have the stems from each individual track mixed for that film. So when films are mixed, you have like a dialogue track. You have a music 
you have an ambience track, you have a sound effects track, you have a music track. Um, if the, if you have all those separately and separately mixable, you can do a, quite a bit actually. You can have all the dialogue live in the center, have all the music panned out to the sides and separately mixed so as to have reverb and all that. Um, if you have a stereo music stem, even better, you can have a basically create a 5.1 mix out of those stems. Um, and which isn't to say that's always advisable because that's still revising, you know, but that I'd say is a true gray area, right? And we can get to that with stuff like uh, the Jacques Demi remixes, I think. Um, and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, though, all they had was the original mono audio, which means that every time, like, there was more than one thing going on in the soundtrack, they had to make some decisions and oftentimes hack it to pieces. So, for example, um, during the scenes where music takes over, you know, what they would do is they would double up the music soundtrack, uh, create a, a ping-pong delay, which means that it plays in, like, the left speaker a millisecond before the right speaker, and then they add reverb in the back to make it sound like... Anyways, it sounds effing terrible. Yeah, whether you're listening to it on a stereo system or a surround sound system, it just sounds awful. And, like, and for what it's worth, my first version was the DVD, and that's how I thought it sounded. Mm -hmm. That's one part. Second is, what do you do when you have things like Foley, which you can't just pan out to everywhere, right? There's a lot of cannonballs in that movie. It's not a very good 5.1 mix if everything is in the center because it's mono. So they replaced every single gunshot, every single cannonball with, you know, stereo or maybe 5.1 recordings of very sterile studio gun foley. Y you know, think of a spaghetti western gunshot. Very distinctive sound. In the good, the bad, and the ugly, they use that cliche stock sound effect. That's kind of where it became popularized. <laughs> so they so they replaced it with modern sounding bullet. And it is so incongruous with things like the dialogue and just the rest of the movie. So you got that going on, you got the music going on, and then just as destructively you have the dialogue panning. They made the wacky decision that whenever a character was off screen, they would pan their dialogue to an off-screen space in the soundtrack. So there's this moment where Blondie says, $200,000 is a lot of money. We're going to have to earn it. And it cuts between the first half of that line and we're going to have to earn it. So when he says you're going to have to earn it, suddenly his voice is in the back left channel. $200,000 is a lot of money. We're going to have to earn it. It's one of the most disorienting sound design decisions I've ever heard in my whole life. And I, to this day, even when I'm listening to the Laserdisc Mono, I can't help but hear it that way. So that's the yeah. danger. Don't do this at home, kids. Yeah, I'm, I mean, and this this is just how we, how the movie is often just available to hear. And of course, you can pick the mono track on the latest Blu-rays that are out there for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but that version has heavy mo noise reduction. And it's tinny. Yeah. It sounds like crap. So it's basically you get a horribly processed mono version. It sounds tinny and almost it's almost unlistenably shrill. Yeah. versus a 5.1 mix that essentially rewrites all of Leone's decisions. Yeah. The, this touches on the, the idea in surround sound where you keep the dialogue up front no matter what. <laughs> like if someone's talking off screen, you keep the dialogue in the front center channel because anything else just sounds distracting because we tend to just cut around dialogue scenes when we're watching a movie. So if you're I in a shot reverse shot, you don't just like... That's almost always true, but sometimes yeah. it's not. Like for example, oh, yeah. um, if there's... And um, if there's a scene where you have two principals talking in the center, right? Mm -hmm. Or you have a shot reverse shot, usual setup, two people talking. If you have like an extra in the far background, 
like shouting something. Yeah. And that can live off screen because the, yeah. you know, it's this weird social contract between the audience and how they perceive the reality of their film. It's yeah. interesting to me. Oh yeah, I, I've been breaking in my new, uh, um, after a long, long time, I finally got a surround sound system up and running at home and I'm going to be breaking that in and then we're absolutely going to be doing an, a whole episode about surround sound. Possibly we can release that episode in 5.1. I would, I would love to be able to, like, I, I legitimately, like, kind of peeked if, into, like, is there some way to do this? But there's not no... Not with a podcast platform, but we can just, like, no. also post it on our, like, blog if we can somehow encode it in Dolby. Yeah, which which I could, but it's just not do it's not it, worth do it. it. Anyways, <laughs> but yeah, no, for the one person who ever do that, uh, which is you, uh, I want to actually loop in the Mondo, the Italian Mondo Blu-ray that everyone thinks is great of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I'm grinding the axe real hard. Anyways, um, this is one of our favorite films, folks. So it's it's natural yeah. we're gonna live in this one for a bit. Do you remember Mondo's solution to? Yes. The 5.1 music? Yes, I do. They, yes. They cut in to the actual soundtrack release of the film, which was done in stereo. But get this. Different performances and oftentimes different arrangements and different famously, music entirely. Famously, no album release of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is a one-to-one match for the performances that are used in the movie. Because those probably don't exist. So, for example, the big climax uses the wrong piece of music and it is not even matched to the cuts of the film. The entire effect is lost and it is a disaster. I'd say it's an even bigger disaster than the MGM Blu-ray. Yeah, it's the Italian audio track on the Mondo Blu-ray. I don't know if they released a new Blu-ray since then. I I haven't kept up on the release history of that movie. No, ever since we perfected it. Yeah, Devin and I put together our own um, fan preservation effort a year or so ago, and I'm I'm going to update it with a couple of things that. Oh, I we, I we need to put the, the better laserdisc audio on than I have because better laserdisc transcoded. Anywho, back to the subject at hand. So I want to. There's something I want to emphasize for anyone listening who doesn't have like a 5.1 system and is thinking like, this doesn't matter that much to me. It's all just, like I can just. Put it, leave it as the default 5.1. It's just going to play on my stereo speakers or whatever. It's going to be the same effect as the mono. Not true. It will sound noticeably different. Like headphones, stereo speakers, single mono speaker. If you listen to How Green Was My Valley, the Blu-ray 5.1 mix, then it's going to sound worse because the, the materials that they used for that 5.1 mix had degraded by the time they used it. So it's always just going to sound worse. The mono track on that Blu-ray actually sounds very good. But if you just leave it as the default, which is 5.1, it's going to sound worse. And for the vast majority of people who listen to that track, they're not going to be listening to in 5.1 anyway. So they get nothing out of it. They don't even get the novelty of occasionally some like cave dripping water sound effects playing out of their rear speakers. You get nothing. Let's talk about more of a gray area then, right? How about something like um, the Varda uh, restorations of Jacques Demy's musicals? Because those are interesting to me. Um, What they did was they went back to the original Stems recordings and took the mono audio, which, especially for Umbrellas of Cherbourg, is quite a busy little single channel mix of a ton of music and vocals. And then put the music in the four channels on the left right back and put the vocals and production audio in this i guess it's not really production audio but put the vocals in the center to me this is a case where when i'm watching the movie i tend to listen to that revisionist version because it's 
uh, I, I think, at least kind of a better experience. It's a very faithful mix, except it's the, you know, the, the music has all been panned to the extremes. What's your opinion on that? And where do you fall? Because what happens when revisionist stuff is actually, you know, maybe even a better experience? The Criterion Edition only has 5.1. That is so frustrating. It is very frustrating. I wish it had that. I mean, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, full disclosure, I haven't seen it for years, but The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is my favorite musical. <laughs> and I last saw it probably right around the time I was starting to care more about these revisionist audio problems. Mm. So I probably have never seen the movie with its original mix. The original mm. mix is a lot more busy, you know, and the kind of nuances in the music don't, genuinely don't come through quite as well yeah. um, as in the 5.0. But... To me, the, uh, you know, a good question to ask is, you know, if Jacques Demi were still around, if this technology had been available to him in 1964, would he have mixed the film in that way? And I think it's knowing Jacques Demi in his maximalist ways, likely, probably, yes. So to me, there's this kind of paradox here, <laughs> right? Where it's, do we want to listen to the film in a way that more faithfully recreates the performance in, in a film that is so about the musical performance? Or do we want to listen to it in the way that Jack Demi intended at the time, and to me, I don't have an answer for that. Um, I think right. that, I think that it's I think the real problem is that we don't have easy access to both. I would love to live in a world where we get these remixes, and the question when we put these remixes on is, oh, what's actually like setting aside the puritanism of listening to it how it originally sounded? How does it sound best? today or like what is the best mix today to my ears to listen to yeah and, and that way we can debate about which is the better listening experience as to as opposed to shooting in the dark as to which is more faithful yeah totally like i mean it does would having the orchestra surrounding you and hearing the voices up front in umbrellas of Cherbourg be the best way to listen to it my instincts are yeah like that sounds great but the option should be there and the default mm should always be the original mix. Oh, yeah. Unless there's some, like, we can get to Blade Runner where that is a bit more questionable. The question of original. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, this brings up, to the question of mixes that were spearheaded by the original filmmaker but are demonstrably different. So, like, Das Boot is an example. Where Das Boot, I think the only bad mixes on any edition of Das Boot are, like, the recent miniseries Blu-ray that was released in Germany where they just butchered it in the process of making it 5.1. And their miniseries originally had a beautiful 2.0 mix, stereo mix, that is. But Das Boot in 1996, that I think the movie originally came out in the early 80s, that movie got a 5.1 remix for the first time. And in the 80s, I think it might have had, I forget what it was. I think it had a format where it was a bunch of speakers all playing the same sounds in the back and then three speakers in the front. So it's not quite 5.1. But that mix, which I've never heard, was very well respected itself. But the 5.1 mix for the director's cut of Das Boot that they prepared in 1996, this gets a little bit uh, tricky questions of what is revisionism because mm. the cut is new. So if you're creating the mix in a new format for a new cut, is the audio even still revisionist or or... Is and would any because any audio track would necessarily have to be different to accommodate the different cut. You see how like these things get crazy. But on yeah. the other hand, that five point one mix is absolutely amazing. 
It is insane, and I will 100% talk about it in a surround sound episode at some point in the future. <laughs> Great. But, that, but that, that, is, that is revised. And then there's Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me and a few of David Lynch's films where Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me has my favorite sound design in any movie ever. But I think he did. He, he supervised at least a 7.1 remix. And there's only one scene that I noticed where there was a bit a significant creative change in that movie. And it's enough to like firmly tilt me into preferring the original stereo mix. But otherwise, it's all very subtle changes. But that gets into a question of, okay, if the director of the film, who has been steadfastly committed to the preservation of his films, who has been very independent minded and, and, and has managed to preserve their artistic integrity the whole time, if they spearhead a new mix for their movie, do we make an exception and say, okay, that's the mix you should listen to by default for the movie? Or even does that justify taking off the original theatrical mix? I mean, I say no because obviously I prefer the 2.0, but it, it, it brings us into trickier territory is what I'm saying. Let's talk about why, right? Like what's better about the 2.0 in this case? Because I think it says a lot about how, you know, filmmakers and studios think of remixes. Yeah, good question. So... There, the big scene with the big difference is what's called the pink room sequence where they go into this very extremely seedy club and they're in the back of it and there's just deafeningly loud music playing. Like it's just, just slams into you. It's this wall of sound. And in the original 2.0 mix, it, is, it, it just envelops you, right? Like you cannot hear what anyone is saying beyond a slight murmur in the mix. And otherwise, it's just this wall of heavy, slightly distorted, quite distorted sound. 5.1 mix, on the other hand, there is more of an echo to the sound. You know, it's, it's, it, there's more of a sense of it pinging off of the walls of the space, which makes sense because they're in a big empty room with blank walls mm. where there would be a decent amount of echo happening. The acoustics would be more noticeable. But there's a big difference because it, it distances you from the music somewhat. There's less of a sense of it just beating you down and overpowering you. And that has such an impact on the scene, which is like maybe my favorite sound design scene in the movie. Do you think this is a conscious attempt? To, like, a, Or do you think this is a filmmaker consciously kind of walking back a creative decision you think they maybe thought was too much? Or do you think it was just like maybe he didn't remember how it sounded and he didn't really care? I don't know. It could be those or it could be the thought that hey, we have 5.1, so as a result, we can simulate the effects of how sound would react in the space better. And either That's way, though, it drastically changes the impact oh. of the scene. And the idea that you, know, you have one version of the film that everyone saw at the time, and that's inaccessible now, is, I think, kind of antithetical to preservation of art. Yeah. The next, I think the last major point of audio revisionism that we wanted to talk about today is the idea of music. And this is, this is less of a problem where you have to like agonize over what mix you're listening to or whether it's been DNR'd. This is, I actually view this as more or less one, a, a good problem to have. Like there are good problems in this area of revisionism, stuff that's like actually fun to work through. Mm -hmm. That's the idea of revisionist music of creating new music for movies for different versions of movies and it especially applies to silent movies where very often either there is no original film score that was originally specifically intended to play with the film 
or new ones have been created since. But there's so many different scores for a lot of silent films, and it can have a, a super dramatic effect on what watching the movie is like. Yeah, because I mean, there's uh, like I remember the old Blu-ray of uh, the General for uh, of Buster Keaton's The General had what three scores, or at least I've heard three different scores for it. Right? There's one that's just a piano playing like ragtime. Uh, there's one that's a very small orchestra or like a you know chamber concerto. Chamber piece, yeah. And then there's the Carl Davis full-on orchestra treatment. As is often the case with Carl Davis scores, that is the best version. <laughs> yeah, and I'd say that's the best version, but all three impart a significantly different feel and impact on the film. Even the jokes change, right? Things, um, the, the pacing of the humor is totally different in all three. You know, the fact that all three use different structures for the way they weave in and out themes changes the structure of the film. It's very, it's very interesting. Different emphasis on like the heroic or ironic qualities of the movie, depending on the score you're listening to. We should talk about Joan of Arc, because I think as much as we love the variety of scores in silent films, Joan of Arc does actually introduce some issues even there, um, especially with availability and kind of the canonical version of a work being maybe yeah. supplanted by one that imparts a different meaning on it. Carl Dreyer never actually approved of a original score for his silent movie, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Nothing ever satisfied him. So as a result, there have been a lot of scores with really differing approaches, and there's been a lot of debate about the best way to watch the movie. One popular conception is just, hey, watch Joan of Arc without a score. It's super powerful, and just the, the spareness of it, the almost ascetic nature of the film's visuals matches well with sitting in an empty room and just silently taking it in. And to be honest, even though there's there's a apocryphal notion that that's how Dreyer intended it, I that's my favorite way to watch the movie. I, I really like watching it that way. That might just be because that's how I got introduced to it and I like the novelty of it, but it's genuinely a super powerful way to watch it. And then there's different scores for the film, like the most famous scorer at this point, partly because it was the one that is always first on the Criterion edition, is... It tends to the, play at the, at the repertory screenings, too. Yeah, it's called the Voices of Light score. And this score is... It's recorded and mixed for surround sound. And it's got these huge choral pieces throughout the whole thing. It was not intended, per se, as a score for the film, but as its own piece with the film accompanying it. Mm. So, and that's an important thing to note about it because it really changes how you watch the film when you watch yeah, Voices of Light. It, it completely changes the meaning of, a, of how we interpret Joan as a character, actually. Yeah, it's much more unambiguously spiritually reverent of Joan with the Voices of Light score. Yeah, the whole question of whether Joan is you know, actually a uh, sort of a uh, spiritual figure or is a crazy person uh, is answered by that score. It's almost imperceptible. A lot of people watch the film with that score and don't even register that as being an ambiguity in the film Yeah, at all. It absolutely is. It's just, it doesn't really become clear if you're watching it with that version. Yeah. And then um, and I Will Gregory a and Adrian Utley from like Goldfrapp and Portishead, <laughs> respectively, did a score for the film. What? I have to watch this. <laughs> yeah. It sounds great. You, what? Here's a, 
those those two scores though, the ones that we just talked about, those this is the other interesting thing. This gets into other stuff about silent films, but there's always debates about the proper speed that you play different silent films at. Passion of Joan of Arc, it's almost definitely 20 frames per second, but for decades that film was usually played at 24 frames per second. So as a result, and that's true this, of a lot of silent films. Yeah. So as a result, there are scores that were composed that remain in the public consciousness the definitive musical accompaniment to these films. And these scores are not timed for what is undoubtedly the definitive version of the film. I mean, this is literally what prevented Napoleon from being properly released for decades because um, in the early 80s, there was this four hour restoration of it. Part of the reason why it was four hours was it played at 24 frames per second. Uh, a lot of the film plays slower than that. Um, and actually I believe part of it plays at 18, right? The other plays at 20, is it that? Yeah. It's yep. madness. Anyways, Carmine Coppola's score was timed for the overcranked version of the film. So, essentially, you had a score that the rights owners of the film insisted was the definitive one. And then when the person in charge of restoring the film, Cameron Brownlow, corrected the film's speed, it was obviously completely out of sync with the score. The rights owner prevented any further releases of the film with the correct speed because he was so loyal to his father's score done 55 years after the fact. I mean, the upside to Carmine Coppola's score is that it's a very repetitive score, and that was partly by design, so that no matter what length the film went to or how much the scenes were extended, it could always just be easily retrofit to the new, or easily fit to the new length because you could just repeat portions. I, wasn't it also to give the conductor, like, kind of room to breathe so that if they got a little out of sync, they could... Yeah, exactly. And meanwhile, Carl Davis's score is like extremely precise to the film. <laughs> Carl Davis's score for that movie, I don't know if it's his best score, but it's like, it is so impressive as a feat. Devin and I managed to catch it live in 2012. And they play it at it's six hours of a group of like 100 musicians playing. It's, yeah. it's mind boggling. With two brief breaks and one proper intermission. Yeah. yeah. We finagled our way into where the orchestra the was hanging out after the film and Carl Davis and um, the orchestra, the, the musicians were not in the best of mindsets. <laughs> yeah, they were. They, I, someone was saying, like, I'm never doing this again. And there seemed to be common agreement on that point. <laughs> Carl Davis seemed to be in a good mood. <laughs> yeah, amazingly good mood. He yeah. conducted it. Man like, in his late 70s <laughs> just yeah. stood for six hours. Yeah. And he na like it was a perfect performance as far as I could. I don't know. Maybe I'd be more critical today. But it, I, there were no noticeable flubs for the layperson, certainly. I mean, and then, <laughs> um, yeah, that's we've run through all the major points. So we've already talked a little bit about, especially in the score oh, part. I, there's one I want. I, I can't believe it. Oh. Shit, I forgot this. Touch of Evil. You have to talk about Touch of Yeah, evil. right. That's even in my notes. T well, talk okay, to me go. about Touch of Evil. I have pizza in my mouth. So well, we covered this a little in the episode three, Worldizing. But Walter Murch famously got his hands on the recut of the Orson Welles film, Touch of Evil, decades later and ended up. Um, essentially instituting the audio ideas that Orson Welles wanted to institute in the 50s, more or less, but much more, obviously, you know, it's as only Merch could do it, you know, and much more technically sophisticated. Um, and also he put in a bunch of his own ideas <laughs> and really changed things up in many ways that I'm sure Welles did not fully intend. Um, right. How do we feel about that? Because uh, to, to, to me, there's no version of Touch of Evil that actually represents what Orson Welles would have made in 19... Nor can there ever be. No. 
no. there could never have been. At least I've eventually settled on the opinion that the Walter Merch version is kind of the closest we can get to in spirit having that following the ideals of what Orson Welles wanted to do earnestly. I agree. I also think it's the best version, full stop. It is, and that helps, right? Same thing with Blade Runner. You know, the, the best version is, yeah. in my opinion, squarely the final cut, and regardless of any ethical concerns, there is that dimension of just quality. Also, every cut, you know, I mean, Touch of Evil, the earlier cuts, I believe, are available on home video. Blade Runner has, like, five cuts. It's not, I think there's eight major cuts out there, yeah, but five is a pretty valiant representational number for blu-ray we'd both be a lot more down on them if they didn't have like widely available comprehensive versions of the original cuts on blu-ray but yeah touch of evil is interesting too because we mentioned this in the worldizing episode he applies worldizing techniques to the opening shot that probably wouldn't have been possible but we're within Wells's stated intent. That's what he wanted when he wrote in his memo and to be honest Wells was an artist who would often invent things that weren't yet possible right like yeah. the guy i mean the stuff he did on citizen kane to, i mean the editing style of f for fake were just not on anyone's radar at the time so the, the, the sophistication with which he was able to do it was far outstripped anything wells could have done at the time but at the same time like wells was all about essentially being ahead of his time so yeah that's such an interesting case especially because the studio version is way more bastardized than merch's was i think yeah my cop-out answer is good good thing we have every version but I mean, if I if you were to ask me, hey, if you can go back in time into the room where Walter Murch is doing the new sound mix for the 1998 version, do you tell him, hey, don't do it this way. Wells would never have been able to mix it like this. Like, try to keep it more in line with what was possible and probable at the time. Or do you say, ah, yeah, that's that's what Wells said in his memo. Go for it. Oh, that's a that's a tricky decision. <laughs> yeah, I would say I would go for it because it sounds great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, I I love the way that scene sounds, and I don't think it... For some people, it takes them out of the movie, but for me, like, I, I really... I think it's really of a piece with the mix as a whole, and especially when you listen to how the original film sounds with the music in certain parts. It's not that stylistically mm-hmm. out of step, but that's, that's just me. To me, what strikes me and surprises me most about revisionist releases, especially audio, though, you would think that professionals in the industry would be able to maybe release not objectively superior versions, but versions that improved upon what audiences heard at the time in certain ways. I think that's not out of the realm of possibility, but it so rarely happens. What's compounding this issue for me is that revisionist releases are so often clearly worse, clearly compromised. And that's what boggles my mind. I mean, if, if our if our debate today was oh is it should we be faithful to the source or do we improve it i mean that's an open question to me but the question of do we bastardize it destroy what's there for vague reasons or go with the original that's not even a question and i don't understand why if audio revision is done why it isn't done less crappily <laughs> yeah i mean for a lot of people they don't think that there's a distinction between those two Choices like people who are engaging in the latter believe that they're engaging in the former. Exactly, right? yeah. That's part of the problem, and and that's the biggest reason why it just needs to be standard practice to include the original untampered mixes of these films. It, it, it just it just it just needs to be standard. We have to demand that mm-hmm. of these movies, and I don't understand why. Why I mean, audio is something people pay less attention to. I know that I've come to accept that. There's fair reasons for that. 
but I cannot imagine why, whether it's a major studio, whether it's Criterion, whether it's all these different sources of restoration and distribution of these films, I cannot understand why nobody's taking the lead on setting these standards. No, and even video standards seem to be much higher, right? Like, Oh, yeah. A lot We're in of, a great place for that. I'd say the majority of Blu-ray releases don't actually represent what we see in the theater at the time, but a lot of them are in many ways superior, right? Um, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly's new version um, released on MGM. I mean, if you well, take... This is a hot take for Good, the Bad, and the Ugly fans from Devon. If you take away that yellow color timing, which I think, yeah, it's problematic, but... If you, if you were to compare that to a release print, the 4K scan they did has so much more lush detail, like the highlights and shadows, and the release prints at the time were so limited, even versus what you know the, the inner positives would look like, right? Yeah. Um, that I'm like, well, if, if I could only watch The Good to Ben Ugly on this version or see something that looks like the really rough release prints, I don't know which I'd pick because the new version is so beautiful. Yeah. And again, it's not like they're revising the negative they're just showing more detail that was present on the negative but was lost in the generations that it took to get it to the, the theater um so to me that's an open question right i think there's yeah. good arguments on both sides of that but the fact but and you know there's dozens and dozens of masterpieces that this applies to where you can only really now see it on a version that has more fidelity than any release print it's not true of audio and it weirds me out I mean, just to just to leave off on this, Jaws is such a great example where Jaws in I mean, it was a scrappy little film to begin with, but like that movie was beat up on its way out to theaters. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and like the new restoration is beautiful. It is it is faithful to the negative. You know what I mean? It, I mean, they had to clean up the negative. There was tons of negative repair involved, but it is faithful to what the original pristine condition of the negative would have been in the cameras and it's it's quite faithful to the color and the contrast and the and at the same and it's not what you would see in the theaters because it looks better it's like the question is like what if we it went out to theaters with the same processes but it wasn't mishandled exactly. right yeah um but the audio for jaws has every problem in the book especially the 5.1 the mono the alternate mono mix on modern editions doesn't sound that great there's new sound effects like they literally swap out Foley like there's a glass breaking Foley sound effect when the shark sinks the boat that like it just sounds like a champagne glass being shattered <laughs> like it is it's brutal. Um, and so you've got this movie where you have I think like kind of this this really good example of a compromise that everyone got behind in terms of the visual restoration and this this dumpster fire of an audio mix that has been sadly really really bad for decades now very true but hey there's good mixes too just check what mix you're listening to before you start the movie you know just check in the menu like oh is there a 1.0 option for this oh maybe that's the original mix maybe we'll give that a shot first why why do you sound like george lucas right now <laughs> is that my i've been wanting to do a george lucas impression for a yeah, long time is that my george very lucas close. When I, when I started making the original Star Wars, Say, I thought... they can build sets like this on computers now. That's like, this can be built on computers now. <laughs> it's the end. It's the end of our episode. Thanks for joining us today. Paige Smith is our associate producer. 
you enjoyed today's podcast, subscribe. And while you're at it, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, help people discover it. If you want to come on the show or if you've got a topic idea or you just want to ask a question about a topic that's coming up and, uh, you know, have us answer it on the podcast, maybe, you can get in touch with us by email via filmformally at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Bye-bye.